Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. And welcome to Tony Katz today. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony. Tony's on his last day of some travels for now anyway, and uh, he'll be back doing the show tomorrow and I'll be listening. But for day for today, I'm, I'm happy to be here and be with you. Uh, news coming out of the 2nd Congressional District, uh, which is northern central Indiana is how I would describe it, is over the weekend, Republicans chose their nominee for both the general election and the special election to replace uh, Congresswoman Jackie Walorski, who tragically, uh, along with two staffers, uh, lost her life in an in a automobile accident. And, and while everyone says nothing but wonderful things uh, about Jackie Walorski, as well as the other folks who tragically lost their lives as well, it did um, leave uh, a, a, a vacuum in the sense of uh, an unoccupied seat in Congress. And so the way the process works is uh, Republicans through the precinct committee uh, members uh, across the state uh, are able to select um, the chairman, uh, excuse me, I'm I'm reading and talking on the radio at the same time, and that never works out well. 375 precinct committee members got together and voted on who should replace Jackie Walorski uh, as the GOP candidate in both the special election and the general election. Why are we talking about two elections? Well, one is to run uh, to see who finishes Jackie Walorski's term. Well, her term was ending at the end of this year. In other words, the November election uh, was going to decide whether Jackie Walorski kept her seat for another term or whether uh, she lost it. She ran unopposed in the primary, so it would be her or the Democrat candidate there in the second district. So two questions. Now that that seat is empty, who finishes her term, which is essentially now through the end of the year, Uh, or after the election through the end of the year. And then secondly, uh, who runs in the general election? And that question was answered here by the Republicans over the weekend where those 375 precinct committee members got together. And it's interesting interesting because 11 people announced their candidate, their candidacy, to run for that uh, open position and to run as the nominee from the Republicans in the general election. And by the way, both those elections are happening on the same day, November 8th. So we had 11 people to choose from. The rule is that one person has to get a majority of votes, 50% plus one. And there are 375 of them. And there are 11 people running. So when you look at those numbers, uh, what a lot of us predicted going into the weekend was that this was going to take a while and there were going to have to be multiple ballots because you would you 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 would take a ballot and you take the, the, the top vote getters, let other people fall out, then have a new vote based on only the people that remained. And this can go on for quite a while, and we've seen that in other contexts. However, on the very first ballot, out of the 375 people voting, uh, we saw Rudy Yakim, who was actually the campaign uh, finance manager for Jackie Wolorski, actually won on the very first ballot, winning 206 votes out of the 375. And he had some some folks with some name recognition running against him. And I think the the huge thing that 
Mr. Yakim had going for him was the endorsement and the support of the Walorski family, including uh, Jackie Walorski's husband, uh, Dean Swihart. Uh, he had come out and publicly endorsed Rudy Yakim. They had worked with him. Uh, Kyle Hupfer uh, voiced support, not as an endorsement, but said he, after the vote that he certainly wasn't surprised by the outcome um, because it was very powerful to have the family, including the husband of Jackie Walorski, uh, in support for uh, Rudy Yakim. And so that is going to be your candidate there in the 2nd congressionally second Congressional District um, in the uh, special election to see who finishes out Jackie Walorski ter- Walorski's term, and then also uh, in the general election uh, to see who represents the 2nd District for the next two years after that. Um, so that is interesting and something we should all keep our eye on in terms of the general election uh, as well. Interestingly enough, also in the political area, uh, we saw an announcement from Liz Cheney. Now, Liz Cheney, the Republican from Wyoming, Congresswoman, Representative Liz Cheney, uh, daughter of Dick Cheney, former vice president, uh, she uh, obviously very vocal in being uh, anti-Trump. Uh, she is uh, presiding over, uh, to a large degree, assisting in, is probably a better word, the so-called January 6th hearings, which is pretty much singularly directed toward uh, casting blame on President Trump for the riots at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, As a Republican, quote-unquote, she's been incredibly vocal uh, in criticizing not only President Trump, but anyone else who voices concern or who disputed the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election. And on that really platform... And you don't hear much else from Liz Cheney in terms of what she's for, what she supports, and what her agenda is, other than she's anti-Trump and she's anti what she calls election deniers. And that seems to be very, very important to her, in, in, to the point where that seems to be the only issue she's really focused on, the only thing that you ever hear anything from her on, even as she continues to finish out her term, having now been thoroughly trounced in the primary last week. Here you have an incumbent, and this was fascinating to me. Here's an incumbent who had vastly more money in uh, her campaign, donated to her campaign at her disposal to win re-election. She spent something like $7 million on this congressional campaign. Her opponent in the primary didn't spend anywhere near as much and didn't get, wasn't uh, given, didn't have donated anywhere close to the same amount of money from super PACs or from sources outside of Wyoming. So you would see this as, hey, it's an incumbent, obviously having, in most races, a natural advantage. Then you have someone with dramatically more money than their challenger. Those of us who watch elections would look at that and say, challenger doesn't have much of a chance. And in a normal election, that would be true. But the challenger received the endorsement of President Trump, And then you had Liz Cheney out there leading the campaign to a very large degree to attack President Trump and blame him for the violence that erupted during the riots at our nation's capital. You put that all together, and that results in the result of last Tuesday's primary, which is that she got trounced by almost 40 points. Consider that. By almost 40 percentage points, the incumbent, with vastly more money than her challenger, got absolutely her butt handed to her. 
That's pretty fascinating for those of us who watch elections. But what's interesting now is what she's done since she's been beaten. She's now hinting at multiple national in multiple national interviews that she's interested in running for president. In fact, as I was parking to come up and do the show today, I heard an interview that she had done nationally where she's saying, oh, I'm considering it, but if I decide to run, it's because I think I'll be the best candidate and can do the best job. It's not a no. And for most people, it sounds like a yes. What becomes fascinating is, is she going to run as a Republican? She's going to run as an independent? She's going to run as a Democrat? Clearly, when you see who is on what side on the January 6th issue, she certainly aligns with the Democrats. She's still going to come out having just lost her primary, her Republican primary, by 40 points. She's going to come out and run as a Republican for president? Interesting. There's a lot of time between now and 2024, and a lot of things are going to happen relative to who does and doesn't run on both sides of the aisle. But I think that's a fascinating discussion. But what she's also said since then is she's forming a new political group. And she now says her political focus, quote-unquote, is the term that she used, is, well, I'll, I'll just I'll use her words. And this is a quote uh, from, WA, from ABC. I'm going to be very focused on working to ensure we can do everything we can not to elect election deniers. We've got election deniers that have been nominated for really important positions all across the country. And I'm going to work against those people. I'm going to work to support their opponents. So with everything going on in this country, this is the question I have. With everything going on in this country, you've got inflation at a 40-year high. You've got an open border where now millions of people have illegally entered this country. You've got free passage for drug smugglers, for human smugglers, for human traffickers across the southern border. You've got a war in Ukraine. You've got a military heading in the wrong direction because of the policies of the Biden administration. You've got a military more focused on being woke and a, and a progressive agenda than informing the best fighting force to protect this country that you possibly can. That's what we have under Biden. You have all these issues, those and more. You've got real coffee table issues where where Mr. and Mrs. America are having a hard time paying for gas and paying for groceries. Especially with inflation at a 40-year high. And your number one agenda that you want to focus on is you're going to continue to participate in the legislative process. You're going to continue to participate as a political candidate for some office, likely the most important office we have here in the United States of America, and your focus is on going after election deniers, an election that's already passed, and whether anyone's denying the validity of the election or not, last time I checked, Joe Biden is still our president. And I haven't heard anybody since come out with a real theory on how he should be thrown out as president before his term is over, other than the 25th Amendment if he's declared incompetent. Lord knows he's given us some evidence on that score. But Joe Biden's the president. Anybody denying the validity of the election at this point, and look, 
I don't think there was any question. There were irregularity, irregularities is the word, and cheating going on in the 2020 presidential election. There clearly was. I, I have serious concerns about the senatorial elections in Georgia in particular, given some of the evidence that's come out. So I suppose that puts me in the category of quote-unquote election denier at the same time. All those people who won those elections, whatever we want to say about them, are sitting in their offices doing their jobs, having won the elections they won. So any of us who now are questioning the validity of the election, we're certainly entitled to do so, but separately, to a large degree, we're participating in a process of sour grapes because they're in office. And you can be mad at, pres- or at Vice President Pence for certifying the election. You can be Liz Cheney and go after, quote-unquote, anyone out there who's, a, quote, who's an election denier. It doesn't change anything. Why is that your number one political agenda? Why is that so important to you? Particularly as a Republican or perhaps former Republican, that's your priority? That's odd to me. That's strange to me. And for exactly that reason, I'm going to be keeping a close eye on this, and I'm interested to see what happens going forward. Because Liz Cheney, having just gotten thumped in her primary, thinks the most important thing for this country is to punish anyone who had concerns over the 2020 presidential election. It sounds childish to me and certainly unproductive. But it's something to keep an eye on. Right now, we're a little past the quarter hour. It's time to take a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. I don't know if you watched it, but uh, I think it was last evening. The uh, longstanding show on CNN, Reliable Sources. Now, I don't know about you. I don't watch a whole bunch of CNN. I see a lot of clips from CNN that uh, get played other places. Uh, But I, I was interested in the fact that the show Reliable Sources, with Brian Stelter on CNN. And and you hear him quoted, you'll hear clips uh, from his show played here on WIBC uh, from time to time, uh, often uh, in jest to some degree. Um, but uh, he has a nickname, I believe, on the Hammer and Nigel show of The Thumb. They uh, like to call Brian Stelter because there is an argument. And here, I'm, a, I'm another bald guy, so uh, uh, I, I could probably be subject to the same accusation. But uh, his... Uh, his head and face all taken together just kind of look like a giant thumb. Um, I don't know that that's completely uh, inaccurate when I am sitting here looking uh, at a video uh, from his show last night. But uh, Reliable Sources had been on with Brian Stelter as the host for nine years on CNN. And that makes it one of the longest tenured uh, shows uh, on CNN as well. Well, it's been canceled. And there's been a change of ownership at CNN. There's been an announcement that they're going to become uh, less one-sided, less biased, less partisan. Uh, you know, during uh, the years of the Trump administration, uh, clearly CNN was all Trump all the time. A lot of folks uh, really wondered what their programming was going to be like, what their content was going to be like after President Trump was no longer in office. That was one of the first thoughts I had. What the hell is CNN going to talk about? It was the, you know, the constant, Russia, 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 the Russian investigation, Russian collusion, that was 24-7 on CNN. And you heard a lot of people talk about all the reliable information, all the evidence that was going to be revealed on Russian collusion coming right out of CNN. So I've always found it somewhat reliable that, or somewhat reliable, somewhat 
ironic that they had a show on CNN called Reliable Sources that was devoted to a review of other media outlets and a discussion of what was being said by other sources, other media outlets on television and otherwise, in the broadcast media. So you had CNN essentially discussing and, and, and evaluating what were and were not reliable sources in terms of other broadcast media. And I found that somewhat ironic because Brian Stelter, I think a lot of people would say, is the most partisan of any of the hosts on CNN. If you're listening to this, you may easily be saying, oh, no, it's Don Lemon. I wouldn't argue a whole lot with that. Uh, and there are others out there. But in terms of CNN, I, I, he's in a select few that I would point to as being the most partisan out there. And so he had his last show last night because he's now been canceled. And so he signed off, for now anyway, uh, for the final time on CNN. And he had an hour-long show. Uh, and there have been some snippets out there published. I'm sure you can find the whole thing out there somewhere if you're interested as well. But I found it interesting to listen to how exactly it was that he signed off. I can't wait to be watching CNN, seeing what happens in the future. I'm going to be rooting for it. I want CNN to be strong. I believe America needs CNN to be strong. I believe the free world needs CNN to be strong. And it will continue to be. Because all of us are going to help make that happen. And there it is. He, he essentially says America needs CNN to be strong. Listen, America needs objective discussion of political issues. We need a return to values in media where truth uh, conquers uh, over politics and partisanship. I don't know that CNN can claim any particular role in that process. Right now, it's Guy Relford in for Tony Katz. We're taking a break on Tony Katz Today. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. Interesting uh, developments in Florida. What is going on today are the uh, beginnings of the defense case in the trial over whether or not the Parkland, Florida school shooter, the shooter at the Marjorie Donmas Douglas Sto Stone, let me say that again. I haven't had enough caffeine yet today. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, shooter who killed uh, 17. 14 students, 13 staff members, also attempted to murder 17 more and has pled guilty to 17 counts of murder, 17 counts of attempted murder. So you may be asking, what is there to have a trial over? Well, they're having a trial over whether or not he should receive the death penalty. And you may even ask yourself that next question as well, which is why would a jury even need to wonder about whether someone who kills 17 people in a completely senseless, unprovoked, heartless act like a school shooting, uh, why should we even hesitate in a state that has the death penalty? Well, it's required. It's required by statute in virtually every state that has the death penalty, and it allows a defendant to come in and make the argument, as well as it allows the state the opportunity to come in and make the argument as to whether or not the jury should recommend the death penalty. And what they consider are what are called aggravating and mitigating circumstances. There are certain aggravating circumstances, and for instance, in Indiana, here where we are, 
at least where I'm broadcasting from, a jury has to find at least one aggravating circumstance. What's an aggravating circumstance? It's something like uh, committing a serious crime like rape at the same time you commit a murder. Death penalty is only available for murder in Indiana and, and in most states. Another aggravating circumstance, if a defendant lies in wait or if it's a contract killing, either you hired someone to kill someone or you got hired to kill someone, that's considered an aggravating circumstance. If you kidnap someone before murdering them, if you torture someone as part of murdering them, there are a whole series of what are called aggravating circumstances. In Indiana, a jury has to find beyond a reasonable doubt that at least one aggravating circumstance exists. So in other words, the consideration a prosecutor goes through, and we saw this with the Noah Shanavez situation in Elwood, where the Madison County prosecutor, Rodney Cummings, just recently announced late last week that he was going to, in fact, pursue the death penalty in that murder case. And again, a lot of people thought, well, why did that take a few days to review? Well, the first thing a prosecutor is going to do is review whether or not the facts support the finding of an aggravating circumstance that will support the death penalty. Because by law, at least one aggravating circumstance has to exist before a jury can recommend the death penalty. In the case of the murderer of Officer Chavez, the murder of a police officer while on duty is an aggravating circumstance. So right there, if a jury finds that beyond a reasonable doubt, they can recommend the death penalty. But there are also, beyond the aggravating circumstances, there are also mitigating circumstances. What are those? Those are things that tend to reduce the accountability associated with a crime or the culpability or the, the legal term you hear sometimes is moral turpitude, the evil of mind that goes into a particular murder. And you think, well, how can somebody murder someone and not have the most depraved mind imaginable if you're willing to take a life? Well, there are a number of mitigating circumstances that, for instance, consider someone's up upbringing or someone's mental condition short of a defense for insanity. Or here in Indiana, we even have guilty but mentally ill. Short of that, is there potentially a mitigating circumstance? The way Indiana defines it is a defendant was under the influence of extreme mental or emotional disturbance when the murder was committed. Extreme mental or emotional disturbance. doesn't rise to the level of insanity. That's an excuse for what you did because you didn't know that what you were doing was wrong because you were insane. That's how the insanity defense essentially works. You're not accountable because you lack the ability to know right from wrong or you lack the ability to control your behavior. That's what goes into an insanity defense or a, an argument for a finding of guilty but, reason, guilty but mentally ill. But what can be a mitigating circumstance is you're under the influence of this extreme mental or emotional disturbance. The, the fact that someone had no prior criminal history is a mitigating circumstance. Another one we list here in Indiana that a jury could consider is the defendant's capacity to appreciate the criminality of their conduct or to conform the conduct to the requirements of the law. That is something just shy of actual not guilty by reason of insanity if it's due to a mental disease or intoxication is actually 
a mitigating circumstance in that context. So that's what's going on in Florida. And that is there is an argument going on as to what the aggravating and mitigating circumstances are. If a jury finds the existence of one, they can recommend the death penalty. What's going on right now is the defense has begun their part of that trial on the death penalty phase. And the news accounts, because these arguments are going on here just today, even during the show. And I just saw a publication of the first article I've seen on this of someone who's reporting from the courtroom. And the arguments fit classically into the discussion we just went through here. Because a jury has, for instance, just today during the show, the defense counsel, in this case as a public defender, is now talking about the fact that this murderer, and I don't use mass shooters' names on the radio. I never have. Uh, I have no intent of doing so relative to the shooter from Parkland, Florida. But the argument being made by his attorney right now is that his birth mother's abuse of drugs and alcohol during his pregnancy caused him to develop what they call fetal alcohol syndrome and antisocial personality disorder. And a quote from their argument is because Nicholas was, uh, let's see, I threw out the first name there, didn't I? We won't complete it. Because he was bombarded by all of these things, he was poisoned in the womb. Because of that, his brain was irretrievably broken through no fault of his own. So what are they arguing there? Are they arguing he didn't commit a crime? No, he's pled guilty to the crime. They're arguing that his mental condition, in particular what developed because of his birth mother's abuse of drugs and alcohol, caused him to develop not only fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, it's called, and an antisocial personality disorder, but essentially, again, his brain was irretrievably broken through no fault of his own. Doesn't mean he's got an excuse for the act. It doesn't mean he's not guilty of a crime. doesn't mean he didn't commit 17 murders and 17 attempted murders. It means the jury should take that into account in deciding whether or not he should receive the death penalty. If and when we have a trial in the Noah Shonovas murder case involving that shooter, again, there clearly is an aggravating circumstance because killing a police officer in the line of duty is just that. Interestingly enough, if a jury finds at least one aggravating circumstance beyond a reasonable doubt, they can recommend the death penalty. If they make a recommendation of the death penalty unanimously as a jury in the penalty phase, a judge must impose the death penalty. If only a majority of the jurors recommend death penalty, and I'm talking about Indiana now to shift to how things are going to work here in Indiana. If a majority of jurors recommend the death penalty, then the judge can impose the death penalty. It's very interesting. It'll be interesting to see how things stack up and compare. But that's what's going on in the Parkland shooting trial. And this is anticipated to go on for some time. I don't think they'll be done in talking about mitigating factors or what the defense contend to be mitigating factors in, in, in talking only about his birth mother's abuse of drugs. He went into an adoptive home. His adoptive parents died, as I understand it. He went into foster homes. And I'm sure the long, sad story, and I, look, I'm sure it is a sad story. 
and I don't mean to be too sarcastic on that point, but I'm sure what this person went through as a youth, he's still very young, he's only 22 now, and the uh, shoot 23 now, and the shooting was four years ago. So I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more of what his youth was like and, and what his living conditions were like. And it'll be interesting at the end of the day to see whether a jury decides that that should be such a mitigating circumstance or the mitigating circumstances outweigh the aggravating circumstances such that he should be spared the death penalty. I think that'll be an interesting thing. And uh, certainly I think a lot of people are be keeping a close eye on that as well. Right now we're going to take a break and come back, talk a little bit about the vote that uh, – the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, has just taken relative to their confidence in both Marion County Prosecutor Ryan Mears as well as the Marion County uh, Judicial System, uh, and uh, and uh, go from there. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on the—I so started to say the Gun Guy Show. I came very close. I'm so used to saying that. Producer Ryan's laughing at me. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Cast Today. Yeah, welcome back. I'm Guy Rilford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. Uh, you just heard it reported. I'm sure uh, there will be a lot more uh, throughout the afternoon, including on the Hammer and Nigel show, uh, about the confidence vote that the Fraternal Order of Police here in Marion County uh, just came back with uh, results of. Came back, and as I believe I heard Donnie Burgess report during the news, 97% lack confidence in the Indiana uh, or Marion County, I should say, judicial system, and 99%, I believe, was the result on uh, Marion County Prosecutor Ryan Mears. Listen, uh, I'm going to leave it to the FOP to, to discuss those results and why. Um, when we talk about the entire judicial system, uh, I, you know, I will say there are absolutely some very fine judges in Marion County. I know I practice in Marion County, and I'm honored to be uh, a, a lawyer in front of a lot of the judges in Marion County. I do think there are systemic uh, issues that need to be addressed, um, and I certainly uh, believe that uh, the performance of Marion County Ryan Mears uh, is something that also warrants a lot of discussion. But I think voters ought to be looking, in particular with respect to the prosecutor, as how the police feel about uh, that elected position, um, which is Marion County prosecutor. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say about that. In fact, I believe I have FOP President Rick Snyder, who has just called in uh, to share the results with us. So, Rick, thanks so much. And I know, I know you're busy. You just had a press conference literally minutes ago, uh, but you had some uh, uh, pretty incredible results come in from your confidence vote uh, from FOP today. Yeah, uh, and it's not anything that we take lightly by any means, but uh, this is a representative vote of all police agencies and their officers throughout all of Indianapolis and Marion County who voted uh, with a 99% no confidence in Prosecutor Ryan Mears and a 97% no confidence in the Marion County court system. The end result being that our police officers have publicly made clear they do not have confidence in our prosecutor or our court systems, and it begs the question, where do we go from here? Exactly. Um, are there going to be discussions on that point coming out of FOP, or are you essentially delivering these results, and now the voters, in terms of the prosecutor's office, uh, those, uh, whether it's city, county, council, or whoever it might be, that has input over the, the, the infrastructure uh, and the performance of the, of the judicial system, will we'll pick it up and take it from there. What do you see FOP's role going forward? Our leadership executive board will be convening a meeting now, and uh, 
the provisions to start moving forward to uh, request a meeting with the Indiana governor and the chief justice of the Indiana State Supreme Court uh, to discuss this outcome and ask them, where do we go from here? Were you surprised by the results at all, Rick? I mean, you and I have had a lot of discussion, particularly about the prosecutor's office and the what we see as the revolving door of the uh, Marion County uh, judicial uh, system. Um, were you surprised that it was so, I mean, 99%? Per, uh, you get any group of people together on any given issue, and 99% is fairly astounding to me that you, that, that kind of consensus has ever developed. Yeah, I, 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 I suspected it could be high on the prosecutor. Uh, but I was still even surprised that it was that high. And uh, I was definitely surprised that it was as high as it was on the court system. Um, and uh, it just, honestly, it's heartbreaking. This is a justice system that we risk our lives to uphold. And we've got two-thirds of the equation that uh, we need to start doing their job and start helping us here by doing what they have available to them under the law, uh, just like we are doing when we're risking our lives day in and day out. You know, there is um, an election coming up uh, here in November, and Cindy Carrasco is running against uh, Ryan Mears. Uh, You would like to think that voters are going to take into account how their police officers, the people who put their lives on the line to protect, um, that their police officers and their communities have this uh, consensus on the performance of Ryan Mears as Marion County prosecutor. Notwithstanding that, you know, we've seen big wins from, from Mayor Hogsett after what seems to be a pretty dismal performance on a lot of issues, including uh, a complete lack of leadership in the city during the riots that we had here um, during uh, 2020. Um, you know, we've had some, what we seem, what seems to me to be some pretty obvious performance issues in city government. And Marion County voters continue to turn out and vote for these people. Do you, do you think this is, is going to have an effect with voters? Because certainly it should, because our police officers out there putting their lives on the line for us every day, we ought to listen to what they have to say about people we're voting for. Well, I can tell you folks that we interact with in the neighborhoods all over the city make clear to us they don't want less police, they want more police. And they also make clear to us their concerns and their lack of confidence in this prosecutor for enforcing the law and prosecuting repeat violent offenders. That's the key here, because they see a prosecutor who spends more time telling you what laws he won't enforce versus the ones that he's prosecuting and keeping bad people locked up, people that are harming and killing our fellow residents. And quite frankly, the various folks through the community that are the most disproportionately affected by violence have been speaking loud and clear to us. So uh, many have asked about these other cities that have recall options The state of Indiana does not have a recall option for an elected official. However, they do in a way, and I always tell, I always say this, it's called the election. And the good news is it's coming up. So uh, the opportunity exists for the community and for the citizens and residents to make their voice known. Um, And, but our law enforcement officers are going to need their help to change course here and get us back on the right track. Is there also, and and we're uh, down to 30 seconds, but very quickly, I would think something we all ought to be looking at, too, are potential potential legislative actions, because as Indianapolis goes, as you've already said, so goes the state, we ought to be looking to the General Assembly as well to get involved in some of these issues. And with that, and Rick, I, and, I, and I know you'd love to comment on that. And, and yep, and I'm glad you, I'm glad you responded affirmatively. That's uh, it for this segment right now. Thanks to Rick. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Cap.